Father, we ask that you would enrich our lives this morning, that you would exalt the person of Christ, and that you would inform our hearts with the truth. There are many philosophies and opinions and thoughts in the hearts of man that spew out of our mouths and with good intention, but there is only one true God, and it is he who has delivered to us the truth. And I pray that your word would be clear to us this morning and that your spirit would work in our hearts to use that truth and to refine us and to make us effectual doers, not just hearers of the word. So I pray that you would sanctify us this morning in the truth. Your word is truth, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in recent weeks, the uh, leadership group suggested that it would be good to go through the pastoral epistles, and I am in total agreement with that. They're, they're, they're fantastic. I believe there is so much value in the pastoral epistles, not just in terms of its description of what the character and ministry of a pastor looks like, but in the fact that there is a lot within the, the pastoral epistles that is very practical in the life of every believer and in every church. And hopefully that's clear as we go on through the, the rest of the epistle. It was also suggested that by the group that we do more of an overview series covering large sections of the book at a time. I think overview studies can be often neglected, actually. I, I think it's unfortunate because it can be very helpful to understand the full, fuller context of a book. Um, it helps to see how the, the pieces uh, fit into place and how they are even part of the whole. That said, we are also leaving out a lot by doing this and simply skimming over things that could take an entire sermon to explain all in, a, in, a, in and of themselves. So I say this because chapter 2 of 1 Timothy is actually packed full of truth. Um, we're only going to briefly skim across some larger topics. Additionally, 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you're familiar with it, is arguably the most controversial chapter in all of the New Testament. <laughs> I mean, really. If not, it's definitely right at the top of the list. Just look at chap uh, verses 3 and 4. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Look at verses 9 and 10. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but, but, but with what is proper for a woman who professes godliness, with good works. Look at verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Verse 13 and 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So why did Paul say these things? And what was the extent of the meaning? What was the context and the meaning of these things? Each one creates a whole litany of questions related to the specific topic that have to really be addressed. So I contacted the guys, I believe it was Friday, 
And I said, I suggested that this chapter really needed to be divided at least in half. And so Scott very graciously was willing to shift gears, and he's going to be approaching the second half of this next week. And I think it's beneficial. It's going to be very beneficial for us. But before we start to dig into the first half of chapter 2, I want to take a few moments and reflect on the context of Paul's letter to Timothy. Taking a moment to set our minds into the historical context, because I think it's very easy for us to take our modern-day Western mindset and impose it upon the Scriptures. But I want you to imagine uh, the known world at this particular time, before everything, uh, before the Americas were even a figment of anyone's imagination, all you had was this region that surrounded Ephesus. What did it look like for, for the beginning of the church in this world at this time? I want you to think about this. Up until the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was only the Israelites who possessed the revelation of God and the knowledge of the one true God. Let that sink in. And, and although it was the intention of God that they would be a testimony to the nations, they viewed their special relationship with God as a personal right based on their lineage and their law and their covenants. They, they absolutely despised the Gentiles. The Gentile nations, peoples, they despised them. And they believed they alone were to be saved and approved by God. They were the privileged ones, and they kept everything to themselves. And then you had the Gentiles. With no knowledge of God, they had developed this entire system of varied religions and gods that they worshipped, often by means of depraved practices like drunken orgies through which they presumed through these practices that they drew closer to the gods and had some intimate fellowship with the gods by doing these depraved things. You think our culture has gone downhill lately. It has. But this culture was absolutely full of wicked depravity. Gluttony, having relations with cult prostitutes as part of everyday religious practice, uh, these orgies I just described, um, there was serious covetousness. They would abandon even their babies just in the outdoors if they didn't want them. And the list goes on and on. I'm just, this is just a brief description. It was a very wicked culture inundated with idolatry that was a part of everything in life. It, w it was not like our Western society today. The Judeo-Christian faith was not a part of them at all. I mean, we're surrounded with it. There's churches everywhere. Imagine now placing these two people groups together. We have no concept of just how deep the religious and cultural barriers were between these people and the problems that all of this created. I mean, it, it, it's mind-blowing. We're talking about serious, serious prejudice. We throw that word around, but we really have no concept of what serious prejudice looks like. We've not really experienced it in our lifetime. Still, Jews felt that they were the ones, and it was blasphemous to include the Gentiles. They had uh, 
there was understandably a lot of confusion for the Jew um, that originated from a corrupt religious system and a corrupt religious leadership within Israel. There was confusion in their minds. They had deeply embedded wrong thinking about what righteous, where righteousness comes from and where Jesus fits into the picture. It was very difficult for them to understand. Then the Gentiles had a hard time separating from their pagan lifestyle, which is intertwined uh, with the worship of false gods. They had a hard time separating themselves from it. The, the Jews in the church at that time would have absolutely despised their behavior. Additionally, the Gentile world was experiencing the early forms of Gnosticism, in which they felt only certain people had a special mystical knowledge of God, and everyone else was left out and needed to come to them. This took on lots of forms as it grew, and it greatly corrupted the understanding of who Jesus Christ was and how salvation is gained. It corrupted all of those things. You can see these problems even in what Paul addressed in chapter 1. If you remember these words, starting at verse 3 in chapter 1, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Starting at verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and everywhere else is, uh, every, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul here uh, appears to be addressing both of these people groups in that. On one hand, the law does not make you righteous because you obey it perfectly. The law actually exposes sin. That's what the law does to us. On the other hand, sinful behavior is not acceptable and it will be judged because it is contrary to what sound doctrine actually teaches us what, what the true faith in Christ really looks like. Those are contrary to the character of God. So now we add the cultural and religious problems, we add to that the fact that there has never been a church before. There's never been one. There's no standard. There's no pattern. There's no structure. Nothing to use for an example. Nothing. There's also no, uh, they would meet in homes. There's no church buildings. Also, there's no New Testament. We all have one in our laps this morning. They didn't have that. There are some letters 
like this that are floating around and being read in the churches. But the New Testament canon wasn't even organized, closed, and recognized until later in the 4th century. They didn't even have that collection. There was a process in between in which the writings of the apostles were recognized, but we're talking about the very early days of the church when all they had was the Old Testament to work with, and very, very people, very, very few people even got a chance to hear it or read it, let alone interpreting it correctly in light of Christ. Then you add to all these problems the fact that there's no qualified leadership, no qualified men in the church to lead. If you read between the lines in Paul's letter, they had false teachers present. They had those who wanted to presume to be a teacher even though they didn't have a correct understanding of anything. And you even had women who were usurping God's created design and demanding the role of leader or teacher or elder. There's all kinds of confusion. Just to add a little light to the situation, the city around them at that time, even the, the Roman Empire, not only had a lot of sexual promiscuity and homosexual promiscuity in their culture, they also had at that time a very strong feminist movement in the Roman Empire. It was a big part of their culture. And it, it likely played into what was going on here. But going through... Um, the New Testament epistle, just by looking at these things that are being instructed and what things are being corrected, you can start to formulate a picture in your mind as to what the issues were in any given church. I mean, you can read any given epistle or any, any of the New Testament letters and you, you just pay attention to what is being taught and what is being corrected and you say, oh, I see what the problem was. It's no different here in, in 1 Timothy in dealing with the Ephesian church. John MacArthur once wrote this synopsis of the problems Paul saw in 1 Timothy. He said, false philosophies were rampant in the church. There were religious views that contradicted the true gospel of salvation so that the basis of the Christian faith, the saving grace of God in Christ, was being muddled up and people were not teaching true salvation. There was a misuse of the law by people who thought themselves to be teachers of the law, but they had no idea what the intent of the law was. There was a tolerance of sin. There was a lack of holiness. There was hypocrisy. There was involvement with demonic error and seducing spirits. There was a denial of the truth about who Christ himself really was. There was apostasy and the rejection of God's word. There was the uh, abuse of the role of women. There was sin and corruption among the elders and pastors. There was unsound teaching and heresy. There was perverted worship. There was materialism, a desire for money and earthly gain. There was a worldliness, pride, intellectualism, and a general discontent with the will of God. And, and this list is in many ways very generalized. Because if you go through the epistle, it starts to hit on some very specific things. For example, gossiping or the neglecting of true widows or not supporting their pastor, not supporting him so that he could do his work. John MacArthur, he summed up his list this way. He says, now that is a church in trouble in every way you look at it. 
Now, Paul had likely met Timothy on his first missionary journey when he passed through Timothy's hometown of Lystra. Uh, So he's on his first missionary journey, and Paul leads Timothy to faith in Christ. And we know this, you look at chapter 1, verse 2, Paul addresses his letter to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So when Paul later came back to Lystra on his second missionary journey, he took Timothy with him as a companion and a student of ministry. And you can see this in Acts chapter 16. If you read Acts chapter 16, you'll see how all that played out. Now, if you remember, the closing of the book of Acts, Paul has finished his third missionary journey. He's arrested, and he eventually ends up in Rome, right? Paul remains in prison in Rome and for a time, um, but then he's released. And it's believed that it's when he heads back to Ephesus after that, He deals with Hymenaeus and Alexander by tossing them out of the church, and then he leaves Timothy when he departs. And he hands off this tremendous responsibility of straightening out this enormous mess in the Ephesian church. And Paul reminds Timothy with a heavy charge that he laid on him during his departure. Verse, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So Timothy's been with Paul for for years at this point, perhaps even up to 15 years. He's been traveling with Paul all over the place. Day and night he's with him. And he's learned from Paul regarding the gospel. He's learned from Paul regarding sound doctrine, godly living, the ministry, and so much more. So he has a solid understanding of these things, and he knows how to communicate it. So now Paul is handing off the responsibility to Timothy. The charge was mine, Timothy. Now I'm handing it to you. I'm handing it off. Now it is your charge. It's your charge from God. You now must fight the good fight, endure the struggle, and accomplish this task. And I don't think this letter was written to instruct Timothy in regarding to these things. I I think he already knew all this. It was a reminder for him to stay the course, but Timothy knew all of this. He didn't need Paul to instruct him. Additionally, uh, since he was a young man and an outsider in many ways, it, it provided Timothy the strength of being backed by an official apostle, a letter from official apostle, in a letter form that's, you know, it's being read by everybody. And they hear the authority and the charge that that Paul places upon Timothy and gives it into his hands. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul doesn't introduce his other letters this way. It's different. And then he says, then... This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them you wage the good warfare. So it's been handed off to him. So with this all in mind, turning to chapter 2, our text for today, what does Paul address as the most important issue? What does he say there? What is the most important issue? Prayer. Prayer is of most, important, of most importance. In particular, if you read the context of it, it's gospel-minded prayer. 
Now I ask you, what would have been the first thing on your list if you were asked what issues need to be addressed in order to stabilize North Star Baptist Church and get her on the right track? What would be the first thing on your mind? Number one, we need to be praying. Does that top your list? Our, our tendency is to look at organization, isn't it? What's our priorities? Our, our what's, what's God's priorities? We need to start, we need to act. We need to get something done. But if prayer isn't on the top of the list, it obviously should be. I tell you what, I'm certainly convicted when, I, when the thought hit me. And I desperately hope it convicts you as well, honestly. I, I truly believe that many of the issues within the Ephesian church were preventing this kind of prayer. And a lack of, repair, or of prayer was increasing the issues. It was a downhill spiral. We don't have time to address that particular issue right now, what was going on in the Ephesian church that might have been preventing this. But Paul says, and God says here, your first priority is prayer. Often uh, our priorities, we put, okay, we need to attend church service. We need to hear a message. Um, we need to sing worship songs. We need to fellowship. Yes, those are all necessary things that God has created as part of our spiritual life together. But Paul says supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving are the most important thing. Now, is he being redundant here? This, this could almost be saying the same thing, right? It seems rather redundant, repetitious. But I think it's rather purposeful that he used those four different phrases. The word supplications, diocese in the Greek, means to lack or to need. Supplication is a way of asking for supply. Supplication. It is a humble recognition of a desperate need and of the fact that there is only one we can turn to to supply that need. The word is used in a very, very varied different context throughout the scriptures. It could, it could relate to many different things. But in this case, we are to cry out to God, pleading for his provision for the tremendous need around us. Those who are separated from God and under his judgment. That is the first thing of importance. Secondly, the word prayers. He uses the word prayers. The word is always used in relationship to God. It's a way of giving God glory by recognizing Him. We are humbly acknowledging that our Lord is God. He is our Creator and our Redeemer. We depend on Him because He is the only source of all things. And it's important for us to recognize that our prayers are actually a form of worship. Our prayers are actually a form of worship. It's acknowledging that we need him. What is more, we want all things to happen for his glory and for his will, don't we? Third is the word intercessions. He uses the word intercessions. It is exactly what you would think. It means to achieve or obtain something on behalf of another. You're interceding for them. In this case, it is a pleading with God 
in order that salvation might be achieved on behalf of another. We, we literally, we're, we're literally talking about the cause of another, a, a deep concern for their need, literally taking it up ourselves. It's, it's we, we make it our problem. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 8, chapter, or excuse me, Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 26 through 27. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit of God, even now, is interceding for you pleading with God for your welfare. And God's will is that you would be interceding for the welfare of those around us, even up to and including your enemies, that you would be interceding for them. Last is the word thanksgivings. It, it, the word thanksgiving actually contains within it, believe it or not, a sense of joy but it is the spirit of gratitude and giving of thanks with joy. Remember uh, Paul's words in, in chapter 1. He says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, why did I read it? For this reason. He says, I was the chief of sinners. I was the worst of the worst. There was no blasphemer worse than me. We've got blasphemers in this church. There's a problem. But you know what? I was way worse than those guys. He said, but God put his great mercy on display bringing great glory to his name by saving a man such as me and using me for this mission. And Paul says here in verse 7, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth. It's just almost unbelievable. God was not just saving the Jews. He was opening the floodgates of his loving mercy by saving Gentiles, people from all nations, and that includes you and me here today. What, what great mercy, what love that God would do such wondrous things in order to redeem us. Unbelievable things. We are to give thanks to God because he is a God who saves. Not just us, but he also saves those around us as well. And Paul says, I urge you, pray. I urge you to pray. It means to earnestly exhort or implore you to do something. Of first importance, Timothy, supplications, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving should be made on behalf of all. 
And notice the importance placed upon leaders in verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. I would bet if I took a survey right now, everybody in this room has criticized the current president. <laughs> Maybe on a regular basis, okay? But can you admit to having prayed for him regularly? Literally taking up the cause of his spiritual state and pleading with God on his behalf. Can you, can you confess to having done that? How, how about the many legislators, even those who act so wickedly? Do you pray on their behalf? Why is this important? He says, because an oppressive government makes it difficult for us to get the gospel out. Just beside the fact that they need salvation, if we have a government that's oppressive, that's angry at us, we can't, we can't freely give, proclaim the gospel. We want to have a peaceful relationship with our government and our society because it opens the door for us to freely share the gospel message. If we're ever to be persecuted, let it be because we live a righteous life and we proclaim the truth in love, not because we become an obnoxious agitator. Let it be because of that. Pray that God will preserve our freedom to worship and to proclaim Christ. Even that God would save our politicians in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the things that we need to set our heart on. And we need to be praying for those things. And just think about this. Who was the emperor at the time that Paul wrote this? Nero. It was Nero. And guess who was in charge when Paul was imprisoned and then he was finally beheaded? Nero. Paul is urging us to pray for all and specifically mentions our leaders, our governmental leaders. And all the prayers he is referring to here are evangelistic in nature. And how do we know this? Verses 3 through 7. I urge you to pray for all. Why? Because this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of Gentiles in faith and truth. Again, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. This pleases him. This is what is good and pleasing to him. That we pray for all around us. And why is it good and pleasing to God? Why is it good and pleasing to God that we set our hearts on that and do it? Because God is a God who saves, who takes pleasure in redeeming man and has provided the way through Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling us here. He wants his mercy glorified. And in his great wisdom, he has chosen to use us as well as our prayers as a means to do that, as feeble as we are. Our fellowship, our worship, our teaching, our learning time, our times of personal exhortation, correction, encouragement, all these things are a necessary part of our spiritual life that we share together. Yet, it is very easy for us to become very inward focused and become satisfied with just 
a little group losing the sight of the fact that there is a charge upon us that has been handed down to us. And there is a population all around us who are empty, lost, and heading to destruction. We might say we care about these things. We might be very sincere that we care about these things. But it can also be difficult for us to see that we really don't care as much as God would like us to care about these things. Our Lord wants us to make praying for all people a priority, not just as a church, but individually. Now, I still need to deal with the 10,000-pound elephant in the room, okay? Verse 4, our God and Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. What does he mean? What does this verse mean? If God desires all to be saved, does that mean everyone is saved? And, and if they aren't, does that mean he's impotent to accomplish what he desires? I mean, what does this mean? I'm rather confident that none of us here are universalists. Okay, I'm pretty confident of that. And we could spend a whole lot of time going over passages that demonstrate that God will not save all. We can demonstrate that very easily from the scriptures. The idea that there is no punishment for the unbeliever is ludicrous in light of what God has told us in his word. It's a ludicrous idea. There are people that still fight to the death to, to believe that. But it's foolish. This verse is not indicating that you can believe and do anything you want and you will go to heaven or that there is no eternal lake of fire. That's not what this verse is saying. You know Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6. The righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. And, and so... It is with every form of sin and sinfulness because there is no one righteous, not one, right? Under this, we're all condemned. Rebellion against God will not be overlooked. It will face eternal judgment. It's a fact. And there's only one way to be redeemed, verse 5 of our text. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is only one way to God, to eternal life, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's provision for us. It's not up to us to make up our own way. Peter said in Acts chapter 4, he said, There is no salvation, there, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must must be saved. Saved? Saved from what? From destruction. It's a reality. In order to make 1 Timothy 2.4 more clear, we must understand that there is a difference between the desires of God and the sovereign will of God. There's a difference between those two things. On one hand, God may desire something 
On the other hand, there is the perfect will of God that is led by his perfect understanding and produces what his sovereignty directs and determines. Maybe this will help you. Listen to what God declared from the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 33, 11. He tells Ezekiel, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? He's pleading with Israel. He doesn't want to judge. He doesn't want to destroy. Did the people turn? No, they didn't. The armies invaded. The people were slaughtered. They didn't turn back. But what was God's desire? That they would turn. But wait, it was not God's desire that they perish. Does that mean that wasn't God's will? No, this was God's sovereign will. And his will was accomplished in the way that fits perfectly into his plans for human history. This was exactly what he intended. That said, he still certainly takes no pleasure in what had to transpire in order that his perfect will and his plans take effect. But it was necessary. Listen to the words of Paul in Romans 9.22. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So he prepared them for destruction, but he endured them with much patience. Why? Why is that? Because he does not enjoy the destruction of the wicked. That's not enjoyable to him. Do you understand that the wrath of God is going to hit all who reject his son with full force? But God does not take pleasure in the destruction of those who he created in his own image and are now going to endure his wrath. He does not enjoy keeping them in torment for eternity either. He does not enjoy that they will remain wicked and continually hate him on and on and on through eternity. That's not any enjoyable thing for him. Now we know that God will judge sin, and in so doing, he will glorify his name. He will show that he is righteous. He cannot let sin go unpunished and maintain his perfect holiness. He can't do that, particularly the sin of unbelief in his son. He can't allow that. But listen to what Paul says next after this statement. And let me read the three verses together. I'm going to reread that and I'm going to continue on. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why? Why did God prepare vessels for wrath? What did he do that for? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So do you understand what this is telling us 
is part of the reason that God is going to judge wickedness is so that you would have a greater awareness of just how great and awesome the love of mercy and love and mercy of God is toward you who believe. He does not take pleasure in judging the wicked, but his intention is that you would be in continual awe for all of eternity, finding no greater pleasure than to give thanks and worship to him for what he's done to you. That's part of the purpose of why God will take his wrath out on the unbelieving. God doesn't want to take God doesn't take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. He doesn't. His desire is that all would be saved. But God's sovereignty and his perfect will is going to bring wrath upon the wicked. It's going to happen. And that said, Paul's point in 1 Timothy chapter 2, our passage today, is that if we are children of God, we should fervently desire what he desires. That's the point. And we should be earnestly praying for the unsaved people around us. Just some closing thoughts. In, in what, for whatever reason, the Ephesian church wasn't praying. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a need to give this instruction. Maybe they were being instructed by somebody else in the church not to pray for the lost because of bad teaching and bad theology. Maybe the Jews didn't want the Gentiles to believe. I don't know. I don't know what was going on. Maybe they just didn't understand the word of God and the heart of God because they lacked good instruction. Or maybe they were distracted by all their bad behavior and weren't even thinking about prayer. Who knows what's going on? Whatever the case... In the midst of all this that plagued the church in Ephesus, Paul was reminding Timothy that prayer for the lost was of first importance. But it begs the question for us, what place does prayer have in our lives? What what place does it have in our lives? Both individually and as a church. Do we feel a sense of importance and urgency? Do, are we committed to praying for the lost? And have we become, or, or have we become apathetic about the issue? It's just not that important. How could we not care about the heart of God? How could we not care about that? We know the task isn't finished. And we also know that the charge has been handed down to us to carry on this ministry that was begun by Christ and his apostles and then on on to us. The lost around us need the Lord, but they also need us to step up and start interceding on their behalf. They need us to do that. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said this, until the gate of hell is shut upon a man, we must not cease to pray for him. And if we see him hugging the very doorposts of damnation, we must go to the mercy seat and beseech the arm of grace to pluck him from his dangerous position. While there is life, there is hope. And although this soul is almost smothered with despair, we must not despair for it, but rather arouse ourselves to awaken the the arm of God.
let us not be content with just our group and have no concern for those around us who are perishing. Repeating what was said earlier, if we are children of God, we should desire what our Father desires. And our passage says that He desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what He desires. Might I suggest that as North Star is moving forward as a church, that we make prayer, and in particular, praying for the lost, a primary issue. Pleading with God to not only motivate our hearts and equip us, but also to open the hearts of the unbelieving. And let us plead with God for the souls of people around us. And may God make all of us proclaimers of the good news to a lost world. Before I close this in prayer, I want to kind of give a short introduction of our last closing hymn. Just a, a thought about the author. It was written by Fanny Crosby uh, in 1869. And if you're not familiar with Fanny Crosby, she was born in 1820 and was blinded at the age of six weeks. So she spent the entirety of her life without sight. And, then, and though she was never able to see, this dear sister in Christ wrote nearly 8,500 hymns, the, the, the lyrics to hymns, 8,500. Maybe a couple of these would sound familiar to you. To God be the glory and blessed assurance. These hymns are, are going, uh, that we're going to sing here in a little bit is entitled Rescue the Perishing. It was written after she participated in a ministry to men in a New York City mission, which resulted in a man coming to faith in Christ after her constant uh, pleading, her earnest pleadings and interactions with this guy, and he came to faith. She went home and penned this song that night after that experience. And what I love about this hymn is it, it, it speaks of evangelism, but not just in generalities like, you know, we need to pray for the lost or whatever, it gets very specific about their hurts and their needs and how we need to reach them with the gospel of Christ. So after we pray, we'll have Scott come up and lead us in that song. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for our church, Father. Um, any church that we could attend on this earth is going to have issues because we still walk in the flesh and we stumble through this life wanting to be faithful and wanting to grow in sanctification, but we all are blinded by our own weaknesses and pride sometimes. But Father, we still do not have the mess that we just read about. We've been given so much, and I pray, Father, that you would turn our hearts to the things that are on your heart, that your desires would be our desires that our yearning would be for Christ and to follow in his steps and to continue his ministry and his life. Pray, Father, that you would motivate us as a church, that we would see that prayer is of utmost importance and the greatest way that we could worship you, to depend on you and to plead that you would do your will in our lives. Father, sanctify us through these things. Help us to grow and to mature as a body that we would be a testimony of Christ and a light to the world around us who so desperately need to hear the words of hope in the gospel. 
We pray that you would accomplish this in the name of Christ and by his strength and in his name. Amen.